since I'm writing the book on narcissism, I'm looking at everything through that lens, through that story, through that mythological, archetypical smorgasbord, that cornucopia of a story that was told for who knows how many thousands of years, how many times, how many theatrical versions that predated what we call ancient Greece and then became more popularized and changed into ancient Rome and the Roman culture to then be reduced uh, what is it when we take sugar or cocaine? What is it called when you take the plant and you reduce it into like um, what is that called? You know, sugar cane. Like if you squeeze sugar cane juice. A friend of mine has a um, juicer that specifically squeezes sugar cane that he grows into juice. And I was visiting him. He's a farmer in Hawaii. And he he went out and picked some sugar cane. And he made me a fresh, big, big, huge pint glass. You know, like you would drink a beer. He just gave me a pint glass of sugarcane juice and I don't remember if he read my expression or if he intervened with uh, making an assumption about what my thought was and preempted my concern Uh, what I do recall him saying was you know most people think sugar is bad for you he's like blood sugar we are sugar Like our blood is sugar. We need sugar. And when he gave me this big pint glass, I was like, should I drink the whole thing? Like, is is that an overload of sugar? And he was like, no, he laughed. He's like, it's so good for you. It'll make you feel so good. And it's so needed. And, and we need this. And wow, just to drink a big pint glass of fresh squeezed sugar cane. It was incredible. And I don't remember what that word is. Reduced, refined. I think it's called refined. Refined. Refined sugar. <clears throat> and one of one of my critiques and criticisms in the last few podcasts has been about continental Freudianism. How absolutely crazy and insane Freud, like how much of a fraud Freud actually was, and how... He was very confused as to the difference between the coca leaf and cocaine. So Freud was a massive cokehead and a liar. He was a cokehead and a liar. (laughs) It's just interesting that a lying cokehead rooted himself into our modern day. You know, I was responding to... uh, one of our listeners on this Patreon, <laughs> you know who you are. You shared with me on Instagram one day your comment on the New York Times. The, the New York Times had put out a, um, on Instagram, the New York Times put out a little question that in short was asking followers to give examples of what medical gaslighting is. And my friend responded to that New York Times 
and commented, and she poignantly, succinctly, truthfully said something along the lines. I can't quote her directly because I don't remember, but it was short and succinct and sweet. And she said, the entire medical industry is gaslighting. And I followed suit. I was like, yep, that's true. And I, I parroted that. I, I pretty much just said the same exact thing on there, added my two cents. And I expanded my thoughts a little bit to say that, you know, trust the science is a gaslighting term. Safe and effective is a gaslighting term. And what happened after that was a <clears throat> domino effect of, you know, the typical wokest reaction of um, arrogant, hubristic doctors trying to put me in my place. You know, so it's the 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 irony and hypocrisy the inherent hypocrisy in the left always follows suit all of a sudden it's all these authorities and doctors trying to put me in my place and and twist my arm behind my back and tell me how wrong i am and how dumb i am and you know um one of the people who responded to my comment was all of a sudden giving me these freudian diagnoses she was telling me that i'm projecting that was one of her words that I'm projecting. And my point about those wokest, uh, wokeism, emotional responses from those who are now responding because their emotions are hurt, because they work within that industry and, and they're being defensive instead of, instead of what you'd expect, you know, like... We know that the greatest scientists of all time, like the true scientists, the more they learn, the less they know. And they're very humble about admitting that. Um, and so that was my only response to these uh, continental Freudianist, these continental Freudians who are so quick to say you're projecting or that you're um, repressing or that you're... Um, transference there's all these hilarious terms that we still cling to today that go back to uh this pathologically lying cokehead who was taking the refined version of a plant you know it'd be one thing if you fresh squeezed a bunch of coca leaves and drank that fresh squeezed juice uh it's a whole different thing to snort a line of pure sugar you know so that that fresh squeezed cane juice is a lot different than if someone put a pint of refined sugar in front of me be two two entirely different reactions that the human body would have and so this this lying arrogant cokehead that is so rooted in our culture, this, this arrogance and hubristic ego. And so all the people responding on that New York Times post about gaslighting, you know, they were doing the typical thing saying that my comment was gaslighting. You know, they, it all of a sudden gets into this hall of mirrors. And my response to a few of these doctors was, you know, they, they want to let me know that I'm not a doctor and that they are and blah, blah, blah. And so my response to all of them was, you know, why not just be humble? You know, 
why not just admit that, you know, you know less than you think you know. And this last two and a half years really proved to all of us that what is actually healthy, it's healthy to be a skeptic. A a skeptic means that skepticism is not negativism. Skepticism is admitting that there are some things that you will never know. There are some things you will never know. Right? Like there's some things you'll never know. If you inject some brand new technology created in a lab, this whole mRNA with like the the weird lipids and all this all this bizarreness, if you inject that into 70, 80% of the population based on a study that maybe had 3,000 people in that study. Even if the short-term study showed great results, like one of the healthy skeptic uh, attitudes would be you have no idea what the long-term consequences of that short-term supposed gain, you know? So today's podcast, today is August 2nd, 2022, August 2nd, 2022, is August 2nd a meaningful day for you for any reason? Is it anybody's birthday? Is it anybody's day where they lost a loved one? Does August 2nd have any significance to you for any reason? For me, it doesn't. I'd be curious if it does for you. Okay. I, I'm going to introduce you to Edward Abbey. If you don't know who Edward Abbey is... He was a poet, he was a writer, a, a, I would call him an, I would call him a patriotic, uh, like someone who pledged allegiance to anarchy, but not in some, not anarchy in that bizarre, um, Antifa type of pathetic, uh, insanity. I would say that Edward Abbey embodies what cracked Liberty Bell, my my Patreon embodies, and what prosody monstrosity embodies. That balance of where wild meets civilized. I think that Edward Abbey had both of those qualities more than most. That he embodied that balance of wild and civilized. Um, he was a writer, an editor, a poet, a um a wild man one of his most famous books will land you on the FBI's most uh most watched list his book called the monkey wrench gang that if you were to take that book out of a library which i did back when i was in college um or if you buy it on amazon or something that book will land you on the FBI watch list it's it's a fact that's true that's not me just speculating that's a truism uh He wrote another book that's very famous called Desert Solitaire. He wrote a lot of journals, diaries. A lot of his journals and diaries are housed forever in the University of Arizona's library in Tucson. Um, He spent most of his life in the Southwest, New Mexico and Arizona. And he 
was in the Southwest at that borderland, you know, like this rite of passage that the Southwest went through. I think that it was President, was it President Truman who signed the interstate bill in 1956, I believe. Uh, 1956 is sort of like this rite of passage that the United States goes through. You know, World War II ended. Uh, The Cold War began. Um, The big, big powerhouse countries, Russia, United States, China, Japan, Germany, um, they're all like still obviously today vying for power and authority. And and Truman in 1956 realized that he could preserve and perpetuate the American economy by signing the interstate bill, which uh, was essentially like an operation warp speed of the interstate system, where prior to 1956, there were a lot of towns out west that didn't have a interstate plowed through them, you know, like they didn't have a big four lane, five lane, six lane, seven lane, eight lane interstate. You had a handful of interstates, mostly on the East Coast. uh, But you didn't have a whole spider web system of interstates. And the the motive for that interstate system back in 1956 was like a it played on the fear of <clears throat> the next war. You know, you have to remember we went through World War One, World War Two. It played on the fear and the sentiment of the neuroses that we needed to um, create a spider web of a of a, a tran. A, what do you call it? A transit system. A um, transportation is the word I'm looking for. It created a motive to really spiderweb, a rapid transportation ability to be able to move nuclear warheads on the back of 18-wheelers and tanks on the back of 18-wheelers and to be able to like get weaponry, tanks, bombs, missiles, helicopters, jets. Uh, it, it created the motive to spread weaponry around the United States in the blink of an eye, to move a lot of things from point A to point B rapidly to basically use the interstate system as our defense system. And to kill two birds with one stone, Truman, I think it's Truman, it's been a while since I studied this history, but Truman, um, he, he signs that interstate bill and he gives a speech or he writes about it and the speech or written word was something along the lines of uh, him acknowledging that forever the American economy will be built now and forevermore on the stroke of the pen because it's going to uh, ripple effect into every aspect of the automobile industry, every auto mechanic garage. Um, like it's, it's almost beyond comprehension. If you just take a moment to picture you know, big O tires and Jiffy Lube and like all of your oil changing, oil filters, all of your tire changing places, all of your engine repair shops, your your paint and auto body, um, 
the the manufacturing for the chassis of the vehicle, the manufacturing for the spark plugs, the belts, all of the mining that goes into gathering all of the copper for your catalytic converter or all of the copper for the wiring, um, all of the mining for the metal of the hubs of your wheels for the chassis, all of the um, industrial... Uh, all of the rubber that's needed from rubber tree plantations and then your synthetic rubber factories, your oil factories, oil refineries, um, all of the uh, paving, tar, uh, pothole repair, um, snow plow, the salt and the snow plows, the... Um, the weed killer on the side of the roads that's sprayed heavily. The, um, it just goes on and on and on. The, that, that stroke of a pen created just a bazillion jobs. <laughs> and that, that, you know, the automobile companies and all of the manufacturers of spark plugs and belts and tires, they also realized they could design failure into their product, that they could do implementation of of uh, planned obsolescence. So everything related to the automobile company also manufactured their products to have a short lifespan so that you had to buy them over and over and over throughout your life. And so that interstate bill <clears throat> comes into existence when um, Edward Abbey, I don't remember the exact dates of Edward Abbey's birth. What I do remember is that he's a young man in his prime living in the west when the interstates come plowing through the desert and you have to if you've never been to the southwestern deserts <clears throat> they are like incredibly fragile ecosystems um, and imagine how quiet and you know, a place like Tucson, Arizona, if you see maps of Tucson before the interstate came in, it was a tiny, tiny town. Uh, and there are actual springs bubbling through the town. The, there were forests of mesquite trees, like thick, thick forests of mesquite. The Santa Cruz River uh, flowed perennially. And it was recorded that even in the late 1800s, like early 1900s, late 1800s, the, the um, Santa Cruz River flowed it was a big wide river and it flowed perennially all the time and that hunters recorded over 90 if not over 100 species of different ducks that would migrate and float and live on that river so tucson arizona was um it was a lot different than what it is now uh it was lush it was a, an oasis with all sorts of springs hot springs cold springs forests and when the interstate came through, when I-10 comes through interstate, uh, when I-10 comes through, interstate number 10 comes through uh, Tucson, Arizona, um, you know, there's all these things that transpire, like neighborhoods are cut in half um, along those big corridors. It made easy access for smaller arteries and corridors to grow off the big corridor. So sort of like a big cancer. The interstate comes in and then all the smaller corridors branch off of that. And then development comes in really quick and easy with their bulldozers and plows. And then big development projects happen. And by the time, you know, 1960, 1970, 1980 are happening in places like Tucson, the growth rate is just insane. And that 
that you have to put Edward Abbey in the context of seeing these fragile, beautiful open spaces just get obliterated, just obliterated. And, you know, when I was a young man, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, within five years, went from a million to five million people. It was growing at 60,000 people per month, 60,000 people per month. And that slowed down for a little while. And what's crazy is that Phoenix, Arizona, since lockdowns began, resumed that pace of 60,000 people a month, minus the people that are moving. It's growing. It's outpacing people leaving. So it's growing by an additional 60,000 people a month. And where is that growth? It's on all the farmland. The Gila River flows from the Gila Forest into that Phoenix Valley. And there used to be a river flowing through Phoenix as of pretty recent, but all of that river was feeding a lot of farmland and it's beautiful farmland. And that's just being plowed and destroyed for just the most disgusting types of homes, you know, just like, like, um, really cheap, quick, crappy condominium complexes with a Walgreens and a CVS on every corner and just more of the same. And Edward Abbey, the book Monkey Wrench Gang, he writes because he's, he's sort of writing this fiction, but it was based on the reality of his life where him and a small group of friends were out monkey wrenching the bulldozers and the they were trying to like get in the way of the machines that were just destroying the desert at a rapid rate. And I would say this is the biggest criticism I have of the quote unquote freedom movement of the conservative movement is that everything's so bipolar. You have the, the woke leftist inherently hypocritical vax supremacist mask cult blue and non Democrat people on the left. And then on the right, you have the, um, it's like the deniers of that version of the reality, you know, of, of that rapid ecosystem destruction. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's, there's a, you know, we call them like climate deniers. And then we've got these climate change, like the Greta Thunbergs of the world that are like, shame, shame, shame. You've got that ridiculousness on one side, and then you've got the freedom movement on the other side that just completely ignores and denies uh, the importance of creeks and rivers and ecosystems. But then there's the true actual hunters and conservatives that are pretty much minding their own business, uh, trying to conserve and preserve the little bit of wilderness and, and cleanliness and clean rivers and aquifers and stuff that they still have but those those people don't have a voice and i would say that edward abbey was really a voice worth listening to i highly recommend his books and his journals take a deep dive on youtube i'm going to read uh some of his writings on this podcast and i just wanted to give you a little backstory to who he is i think these readings fit in perfectly through that lens of narcissism um and through that lens of, of the story of Narcissus. I'm trying to write a story that that deepens, that gets us back to the depth of that story of Narcissus instead of reducing it to like a Freudian diagnosis that's now in the DSM-5-TR. So <clears throat> the Diagnostic Statistician's Manual text revised, like it's just absolute insanity that we are creating definitions of mental disorders 
uh, and that that keeps snowballing. Like all of that stuff needs to just decay and die. And we need to get back to like what nature and wildness is. And we need to actually get back to what civilization is and find that balance between what civilized and wild is because both are at stake and under attack right now. Okay, here's some Edward Abbey. And I'm going to slow it down and read slowly, more poetically. Here we go. This is just from some of his diary entries. This is a landscape that has to be seen to be believed. He's talking about the area all around the Great uh, Grand Canyon and Colorado Plateau down in the southwest there. This is a landscape that has to be seen to be believed. And even then, confronted directly by the senses. It's strange credulity. Comprehensible? Yes. Perhaps nowhere as the basic structure of Earth's surface so clearly because so nakedly revealed, and yet, when all we know about it is said and measured and tabulated, there remains something in the soul of the place, the spirit of the whole, that cannot be fully assimilated by the human imagination. My terminology is far from exact, certainly not scientific. Words like soul and spirit make vague substitutes for a hard effort toward understanding, but I can offer no better. The land here is like a great book or a great symphony. It invites approaches toward comprehension on many levels from all directions. The geologic approach is certainly primary and fundamental, underlying the attitude and outlook that best supports all others, including the insights of poetry and the wisdom of religion, just as the earth itself forms the indispensable ground for the only kind of life we know, providing the sole sustenance of our minds and bodies. So does empirical truth constitute the foundation of higher truths, if there is such a thing as higher truth. It seems to me that Keats was wrong when he asked rhetorically, do all charms fly at the very touch of philosophy? The word philosophy standing in his day for we now call physical science, but Keats was wrong. I say because there is more charm in one mere fact confirmed by tests and observation linked to other facts through coherent theory and to a rational system that in a whole brain full of fancy and fantasy.
I'm going to say that real quick. Because there is more charm in one mere fact confirmed by tests and observation linked to other facts through coherent theory into a rational system than in a whole brain full of fancy and fantasy. I want to pause there and say I am constantly ridiculing astrology. And that sentence really sums up why, you know, it's like, he says, because there's more charm in one mere fact confirmed by tests and observation linked to other facts through coherent theory and to a rational system than in a whole brain full of fancy and fantasy. This whole brain full of fantasy and fancy, that to me, I'm speaking from me right now, not from Edward Abbey, but I think that whole brain full of fancy and fantasy is, is so problematic for so many reasons. Okay, I'm going to get back to Edward Abbey. He says, I see more poetry in a chunk of quartzite than in a make-believe wood nymph. More beauty in the revelations of a verifiable intellectual construction than in a whole misty empires, than in whole misty empires of obsolete mythology. I love this part. He says he sees more poetry in a chunk of quartzite than in a make-believe wood nymph. And remember, there's a wood nymph in the story of Narcissus. And he says he sees more beauty in the revelations of a verifiable intellectual construction than in a whole misty, than in whole misty empires of obsolete mythology. So even me writing a book about the story of Narcissus and taking a deep dive on that mythology is ultimately me, this is me speaking, not Edward Abbey, trying to bring bring things from that myth back to reality, you know, to to call out astrology and mythology and all of these things for for um, being part of that brain full of fancy and fantasy. And so my book is really an attempt to to get us back to reality. That's really what I'm trying to write a book about is just getting us back to reality. The moral I labor toward, this is Edward Abbey again, the moral I labor toward is that a landscape as splendid as that of the Colorado Plateau best be understood and given human significance by poets who have their feet planted in concrete concrete data and by scientists whose heads and hearts have not lost the capacity for wonder any good poet in our age at least must begin with the scientific view of the world and any scientist worth listening to must be something of a poet must possess the ability to communicate to the rest of us his sense of love and wonder at what his work discovers. A canyon country does not always inspire love. To many, it, it appears barren, hostile, repellent, a fearsome land of rock and heat, sand dunes and quicksand, cactus, thornbush and rattlesnake, and agoraphobic distances to those who see our land in that manner, our best reply is, 
Yes, you're right. It is a dangerous and terrible place. Enter at your own risk. Carry water. Avoid the noonday sun. Try to ignore the vultures. Pray frequently. For a few others, the canyon country is worth only what they can dig out of it and haul away to the mills, to the power plants, to the bank. But more and more, <clears throat> but more and more of those who live here, however, is a treasure best enjoyed through the body and the spirit, in situ, as the archaeologists say, not through commercial plunder. It is a regional, national, and international treasure too valuable to sacrifice for temporary gain, too rare to be withheld from our children. For us, the wilderness and human emptiness of this land is not a source of fear, but the greatest of attractions. We would guard and defend and save it as a place for all who wish to rediscover the nearly lost pleasures of adventure. Adventure not only in the physical sense, but also mental, spiritual, moral, aesthetic, and intellectual adventure. A place for the free. Here, you may yet find the elemental freedom to breathe deep of unpoisoned air or experiment with solitude and stillness, to gaze through a hundred miles of untrammeled atmosphere across red rock canyons beyond blue mesas toward the snow-covered peaks of the most distant mountains, to make the discovery of the self in its proud sufficiency, which is not isolation, but an irreplaceable part of the mystery of the whole. Come in. The earth, like the sun, like the air, belongs to everyone and to no one. Edward Abbey is saying so many things there that are so beautiful. And I could point out one of them that strikes a chord in me when he's talking about a canyon country does not always inspire love. To many, it appears barren, hostile, repellent, a fearsome land of rock and heat, sand dunes and quicksand, cactus, thorn bush and rattlesnake and agoraphobic distances to those who see our land in that manner. Our best reply is, yes, you're right. It is dangerous and terrible. Enter at your own risk. Carry water. Avoid the noonday sun. Try to ignore the vultures. Pray frequently. Okay, this is me here talking. I'm in this area right next to Yellowstone. I'm on the border of Montana and Wyoming. And you are not allowed in this area to camp in anything other than what they call a hard shell, which is a vehicle. You're not allowed to camp in anything with a soft shell, like a convertible car or a tent a sleeping bag, a hammock. You're not allowed to camp in this region in, in anything that's not a hard shell, which is hilarious. 
this this sort of like this we call it like a death denying death defying culture this 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 whole last two and a half years it's hard to explain but it's almost like dying is no longer even um allowed and i'm not saying that we should be like callous or haphazard or reckless in in you know protecting and preserving life but the last two and a half years have, have really been a statement that it's really not okay to just die anymore. And the the idea that you're not allowed to camp in this wilderness area in a soft shell, like what what were people doing here for millions of, of years or thousands of years before the state, you know, mandated that you're not allowed to camp in this area in a soft shell? Like it's illegal to lay down and sleep on the ground here. You have to be in a hard shell. Um, there, there's there's a whole um, mystery. Uh, it's almost as if there's no more trust and faith in God. I years ago, when I was a young man, was hit was camping around Alaska, um, sleeping in grizzly bear country every night in a tiny one person tent every night. And yes, it's scary. And when he talks about pray frequently, when you get into that tent and you go to bed and there's a gazillion mosquitoes that you hear screaming all night long outside of your tent, and when your forehead is sniffed by a grizzly bear in the middle of the night and your heart goes into panic and you have a heart attack because a grizzly bear is sniffing your forehead, those kind of things are uh, miracles. You know, you, you, you survive those to live another day and it's... it's um, there's a huge amount of actual faith, you know? You get in your sleeping bag and you pray and you have to let go into fully trusting God. And you really have to turn it over. God, if a grizzly bear eats me tonight, that's on you, you know? Uh, I hope I live to see another day, but you let go into that fullness of faith. And how many people are talking about faith today in the most hollow, hollow way? Have they laid down on the earth in grizzly bear country and prayed to God and hoped that they're not a tent taco for a grizzly that night? And you're not allowed to do that anymore. That's just bizarre to me. I understand why. People could rationalize it and say, well, you know, if the grizzly eats a person, we don't want grizzlies getting a taste for people because then we have to go eradicate the grizzly and blah, blah, blah. But that's still more of a circular argument that still ultimately is where the authoritative state is the problem. You know, if that grizzly bear gets a hankering for humans, well... Maybe there's still a divine providence in which humans are getting eaten by that bear. You know, there, there, there's still uh, this arrogance to say that humans can do it better than nature. It's still this, this arrogance. And how about humans uh, be harmonic or in harmony or alignment with nature and be humble in actual faith? You know, pray at night and hope you see another day. And, and when you wake up to see the, the next day, to have that humble alertness and head on a swivel, you know, when you wake up and get out of your tent and, and pack up the tent and, and 
you know, really connecting to that place because you're alert and awake instead of numbing out and doing compulsively addictive things and all that. There's, there's like a huge detachment that we have gone through. And it's like, you can picture the interstate system, like coming in and dividing the whole Southwest, but it, it also sort of divided, uh, our self from ourself because our self isn't just us. It's this wilderness all around us. Edward Abbey was a fire lookout for, he got a fire lookout job almost because, uh, the, the boss was like, we're going to give you the easiest, dumbest position. So he worked for the forest service and they made him a fire lookout. So he spent many, many days basically just staring at the wilderness from like a fire station. Um, and he says at one time, men go mad in this line of work. You know, he's sitting by himself up in a fire tower in the middle of the wilderness area on the Colorado Plateau, just doing absolutely nothing by himself day after day. And he talks about how men go mad in this line of work. One of the days that he's in the fire tower, he gets a call on the radio to go be part of a search team where they speculate, the Forest Service speculates that someone might have died there's a vehicle that's just sitting on the Colorado Plateau out in the desert, and it's been there too long, and people are worried that someone must have wandered out into the desert, got lost, and died. So he, he's tasked to go join the search party. And him and his brother, his brother's name is John, and a bunch of other people, local sheriffs, they all, they're all looking out in the desert. And it's very hostile desert country, you know canyons and sand and lots of ways to get lost and no shade and so he's out there looking for a lost person his brother finds the body and there is a man who's dead and they find this dead body underneath the only shade there's one juniper tree and his brother finds this dead body and they have to extract it you know they bring in a coroner and they put it in in the black you know rubber plastic bag and they the zip you know zipper it in and carry it out of the desert this is him writing about that and so when i'm talking about that that part of dying this whole last 2 years with like the ventilators and and just the way death has been turned into some kind of ridiculous shameful institutional industrialized thing the the whole thing is so grotesque all right so i'm going to read a little bit more ed abby let's see here so just remind you this is him writing about finding that dead man out in the out in the colorado plateau on the north rim of the grand canyon from the point of view of political geography We are standing on one of the frontiers of human culture. But the man inside the rubber sack, it was land's end, the shore of the world. Looking out on this panorama of light, space, rock, and silence, I'm inclined to congratulate the dead man on his choice of jumping off place. He had good taste. He had good luck. I envy him the manner of his going to die alone on rock under sun 
at the brink of the unknown, like a wolf, like a great bird, seems to me very good fortune indeed. To die in the open under the sky, far from the insolent interference of doctor and priest, before this desert vastness, opening like a window onto eternity, that surely was overwhelming stroke of rare good luck. It would be unforgivably presumptuous to pretend to speak for the dead man on these matters. He may not have agreed with a word of it, not at all. On the other hand, except for those minutes of panic in the ravine when he realized that he was lost, it seems possible that in the end he yielded with good grace. We see him staggering through the fearful heat and glare across the tilted ledge with the juniper, the only tree in sight. We see him reach it at great cost, and there, on the brink of nothing and everything, he lies down in the shade to rest. He would not have suffered much after that. He may have died in his sleep, dreaming of the edge of things, of flight into space. Or soaring. Edward Abbey goes on to say, His departure makes room for the living. Away with the old and with the new. He's gone. We remain. Others come. I need to take this computer inside and it's raining out right where I'm trying to work. Hold on one second, you guys. Thank God the rains are opening up. I'm sitting right outside close to Yellowstone Park. All right. Let me just finish this last bit here. This podcast is almost over. His departure makes room for the living. Away with the old, in with the new. He's gone. We remain. Others come. The plow of mortality drives through the stubble turns over rocks unsawed and weeds to cover the worn out, the husks, shells, empty seed pods, and sapless roots, clearing the field for the next crop. A ruthless, brutal process, but clean and beautiful. A part of our nature rebels against this truth and against that other part which would accept it. A second truth of equal weight contradicts the first, proclaiming through art, religion, philosophy, science, and even war that human life in some way, and not easily definable, is significant and unique and supreme beyond all the limits of reason and nature. And this second truth we can deny only at the cost of denying our humanity. The book I'm writing, the book on narcissism, The Other N-Word, the book I'm writing, The Other N-Word, is really wrapped up in the readings I just read from Edward Abbey's journals, it's wrapped up in that. It's, it's, 
there's all sorts of things in that book, which is just so funny that uh, we've refined narcissism like a like a cocaine a cocaine diagnosis but the actual story of narcissus is really a story about a pond a forest rivers meadows the echoes out in the out in nature the flowers the prayers the feeling of lost it's about death rebirth And yet, 2022, it's in the DSM-5, text revised, where there's an entire chapter on gender. And, and narcissistic personality disorder. <laughs> and people are stuck in the, in the fantasy and fiction and and hilarity of things like astrology they they talk about aries and leo and taurus but they literally don't know what is right outside their door what what a dandelion actually tastes like you know what clover tastes like <laughs> you know their the the reality has been lost but instead there's labels and diagnoses and the labels and diagnoses the fix the fiction and fantasy of you know Taurus and Leo and Scorpio when the same people talking about Leo and Scorpio they can look out into a forest and they have no idea about anything you know they don't know what a maple tree is they wouldn't even know how to get maple syrup from a tree or when to do that or where to do it how to do it And that just scratches the surface of, of, a, of a people that are so lost and detached from death, earth, the experience of dangerous adventure, not in a reckless way, but in a prayerful, humble way. You know, currently I'm living in a bus, sleeping in a bus. It's nice having that shelter. I'm grateful for it. But two years ago, I was sleeping in a bivy sack off the back of a motorcycle. You know, I would, I, I had a little motorcycle and a couple luggage bags on it and laying down in that bivy sack out in the wilderness uh, when there's mountain lions and bears and the the experience of connecting to God through a letting go and and turning it over to God before you shut your eyes and go into that deep I mean where do you go when you sleep you know especially when you're laying on the earth in the wilderness and when I was a younger man I was surely a lot more reckless and I'm not asking you to be reckless or or dangerous um You know, as a young man myself, sleeping in grizzly country half a lifetime ago, 
there weren't laws saying I couldn't do that. Now there's a law saying I'm not allowed to do that. I'm not even allowed to do that without a game warden giving me like a state sanctioned fine. And these game wardens, do you know that a game warden is the only branch of law enforcement supposedly that doesn't need a, uh, a warrant, a search warrant? A game warden's allowed to search your property without a warrant. Um, and these national parks, if you get a fine, even if it's a $35 parking fine in a national park, it's a federal crime. A federal warrant will be issued for your arrest, even for a parking fine in a national park. Something, something needs to be... Uh, like that that is so wrong on so many levels you know the fact that you have to pay you know these exorbitant fees to stay for a night in these federal park campgrounds uh, an elk and a buffalo and a bear they don't have to pay a fee to be in Yellowstone nor should you uh but if you if you get that fine, it's federal. It's a federal warrant for your arrest. So there is a type of castration, decapitation. Uh, is it purposeful that the authorities don't want us to connect to our wild side, and and that the civilized side is so dumbed down into CVSs and Walgreens and sickness and disease? How do we get back to actually having this healthy balance of wildness and civilized? And I think some of the things have to do with healthy skepticism with which what we talk about, you know, don't trust the science. <laughs> Laugh at safe and effective. You know, laying down in grizzly bear country isn't safe. Riding a motorcycle isn't safe. Uh, but... Is it a purposeful desire to detach us from what real faith is to where we just talk about faith in an abstraction? I'd be curious your thoughts, how any of this or some of this or parts of this land with you. Um, if you're wanting to contact me or suggest ideas or share your comments, complaints, concerns, anything, join the Patreon, www.patreon.com slash cracked liberty. Like the cracked liberty bell, cracked liberty. One word, www.patreon.com slash cracked liberty. I really hope I hear from you and I would love it if you join the Patreon. Goodbye.